Yes, absolutely, Tom. Sorry if I look a bit more flustered than usual. I think we're in the middle of that rare thing, a UK heat wave. So nothing by Texas standards, but uncomfortably hot for a land that doesn't do aircon. And yeah, definitely the political climate is uh, heating up as well. But effectively, Boris Johnson has resigned. That was Jonathan Armstrong. In this episode of Life with GDPR, Jonathan and myself take up the resignation of Boris Johnson as the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and try to take a look at what it might mean for the compliance professional and the compliance profession going forward. We look at the reasons for the resignation, some of the potential candidates, key issues going forward, and how the pincher matter can provide some significant lessons learned for the compliance professional. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be back with Life with GDPR. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back again with Jonathan Armstrong for another episode. But we're going to go in a little bit different direction today to take up, frankly, our favorite topic, political speculation. And we're going to do more than speculate because we're actually going to comment. And mainly, I'm going to listen to Mr. Armstrong comment about the resignation of Boris Johnson. So, Jonathan, first of all, welcome back. And uh, pretty significant events on your side of the pond over the past couple of weeks. Yes, absolutely, Tom. Sorry if I look a bit more flustered than usual. I think we're in the middle of that rare thing, a UK heat wave. So nothing by Texas standards, but uncomfortably hot for a land that doesn't do aircon. And yeah, definitely the political climate is uh, heating up as well. And the Conservative Party leadership race has well and truly begun. And I guess we should say that we're recording this at about half past two UK time on Monday the 11th. And the reason for saying that is we're expecting an election of the 1922 committee around about 10 minutes time, which might make a lot of the stuff I talk about (laughs) obsolete. But effectively, Boris Johnson has resigned. I don't think there's been a resignation letter. There's been an indication through the press that he will resign. And he's held a press conference at number 10 saying that he intends to resign when his successor is appointed. And he intends to resign from both of the positions that he holds, so leader of the Conservative Party and as Prime Minister. That does not necessarily trigger a national election. So a prime minister can, if you like, take over the administration without a general election, because in the UK, unlike the US, the party, the winning party, effectively determines who the prime minister will be and not the public. And we have had episodes of of that with both of the main parties where the leader has stepped down mid-term and the success has been appointed by the party and that person's automatically become prime minister. And that is that might well happen here. The difference is, in some respects, this thing called the 1922 committee. So the Conservative Party is somewhat archaic in that 
In terms of picking its leader, that's governed by a committee, which is elected by Conservative MPs. That's the election that just started seven minutes ago. And there's some interest there, I think, to compliance officers as well. For example, it's a theme we'll return to often. One of the issues potentially in the election of a new candidate could be China, could be supply chain issues, could be labour issues. And Nuzgani, who effectively co-led the parliament inquiry into supply chains and into Xinjiang is standing for the renewal of her term as vice chair of the 1922 committee. So a number of individuals who've expressed concern about China and have been involved in parliamentary reports into Xinjiang, labor supply, forced labor, modern slavery, are players in this new election. So that's one of the issues I think we can definitely expect to see rise in prominence as a result of the election. But certainly it's a, it's, it's a moving feast. And so far we've got 11 candidates declared. My anticipation is there'll be at least another one before, before the sun sets today. So, Jonathan, I know you have talked on several podcasts you and I have been a part of about the missteps of the Johnson administration uh, around ethics issues, perhaps even cultural values issues, or what I think the British press would call the sleaze issue. And the last straw which brought him down I think standing alone probably would not have been enough to, to bring down a prime minister. But the accumulated weight of all this, did you sense that was really the reason? And was it, uh, or was perhaps this last event, I think it was with Mr. Fincher, so terrible that alone was good enough? Or was it even the conservatives sense it was time for a change hearing from the electorate? Or perhaps all three? I think you're right. I think it's all three. I think there are definitely lessons from the Pincher case. We don't know the full detail on this, of course. My suspicion is that Johnson, rightly or wrongly, I have the view wrongly, regarded a male-on-male sexual assault as less concerning than a male-on-female sexual assault. And there's perhaps a wider lesson for compliance officers here that a sexual assault or an assault or any form of mistreatment has to be investigated, whether it's same sex or whether sex has no role at all. If you hear about wrongdoing, you have to investigate it. And if you investigate it and there is subsequently a whistleblower who says, I reported this incident, a good strategy isn't to say, I deny the fact that the whistleblower ever raised the whistle, if that's what they did do. And a good strategy isn't to say, yes, they raised it as an issue, but they didn't really give us enough evidence and there was nothing categorically to point the finger at any individual. Whistleblowers, particularly when they allege sexual misconduct that they're very uncomfortable with, sometimes don't give you the full nine yards in their first 
call to the whistleblowing helpline or in their first connection with an online reporting tool. And it's the skill of the compliance officer, if it's their role to investigate, to bring that out and get as much information as possible. And if they don't do that, they can hardly criticise the whistleblower or the victim for not having given as much information. So I think there is some concern about that. I think there's some concern about the fact that one of Boris's defences, if you like, was to say, well, he wasn't prime minister at the time. And when the individual at the foreign office complained, he wasn't prime minister because he was in charge of the foreign office. And that's the department that the claim came from. So I think many in the Conservative Party and obviously I don't speak for them, were concerned by the fact that he was trying to make defences out of things that weren't defences. And instead of saying, I'm sorry, I got it wrong, or I don't remember, he was trying to findangle an answer out of nothing. I think there was a, continues to be a concern at the same time about Russia. And Boris Johnson's position on Russia has been, let's say, somewhat ambivalent. People have talked about political donations that Johnson and the party and his campaigns have had from Russian individuals. And they have talked about things like individuals connected with Russia paying large sums of money to play tennis with Boris Johnson. Now, my gut feel is that playing tennis with Boris Johnson is somewhat less attractive than playing tennis with Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal. And the amounts at auction to play tennis with Boris Johnson, and to be fair, David Cameron before him, succeed amounts that people have paid to play tennis with Nadal and Federer. And as we lawyers say, rebuttable presumption there is that something funny is going on. And I think there's been a lack of clarity about that funniness. And then, uh, coupled with that, last week, Boris Johnson had an appearance before an influential Commons committee, uh, shortly before he resigned, when there were some discussions about when he had met a, a Russian oligarch. And he said he couldn't recall meeting him and was a bit vague on detail. And then, with remarkable clarity, was able, able, within about three minutes, to talk about a meeting that had taken place in Italy. Having been vague as to whether he knew whether he'd met the chap at all, he was then able to be very certain that meeting had taken place in Italy. And that was why the proper procedures were not followed by having uh, civil servants present, etc., etc. So I think many in the Conservative Party have got, I, I think to your point, I think it's the cumulative effect of a number of lies, and not only the lies, but also not admitting that they are lies and being dragged unwillingly by the hair to the truth. And so that has tired people. And I agree with you as well that this isn't all altruism. I think some conservative uh, MPs, particularly those in marginal constituencies, particularly those who have what what are called red wall seats, so seats that are traditionally Labour that turned uh, conservative at the last election, 
are worried about their futures as MPs, particularly because the two last by-elections were pretty much an unmitigated disaster for the Conservative Party. And if safe Conservative seats can turn to the Lib Dem or Labour Party, then clearly seats with a margin of 1,000 or 2,000 votes are likely to switch as well. So I think there are mixed motives. I think probably more MPs are motivated by the fact that they think that Boris Johnson has gone from being an election asset to an election liability. But some of them are people of principle who didn't want to stand up for the lying. There's maybe, Tom, to mention just one other group as well, those who've been personally affected. So how it works is that effectively one person close to government is put up for something called the round or the milk round each morning where they tour the various press outlets to answer questions or give the government's position on an issue for that day. A number of people who did the milk round said that they were personally very embarrassed at the fact that they were giving given briefing papers by number 10, let's say at 9am. They went and did the round and defended that position and gave what they were given as the truth as truth in the milk round that morning. And then about 11 o'clock, number 10 would deny everything that had been said at 9am by these ministers or people close to the government who'd been told that was the truth. And I think there is a small but influential group of people who are personally embarrassed at being possibly deliberately misbriefed each morning as they went and did the round of news outlets. Jonathan, you mentioned uh, China as a potential issue, and perhaps we might take this up uh, more robustly in another separate podcast. But my observation is that in the United States, China is viewed as an economic competitor, and that much of the sanctions and other economic uh, issues, or rather economic responses of the U.S. government, turns on the issue of competition, whether, although that could be nefarious competition, such as theft of IP, but it's basically competition. Even the U.S. bill, to the extent we have one, around the Uyghurs. In, however, the United Kingdom response is focused much more on the anti-slavery issue. And so I wanted to ask if, one, you find that general observation to, to be correct, and two, if, two, do you see the, the paths or interests of the United States and the United Kingdom differing because of their different focuses with regard to trade in China? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think that, in some respects, Boris Johnson has tried to cozy up to the Chinese authorities at various times. A lot of that relates to nuclear power, that the UK wants to shift from generating power through carbon to a mix of green energy and nuclear power. And for nuclear power, it needs substantial investment. And the way of the Conservative Party is usually to try and raise that money, if you like, on the open market through public-private sector partnerships, rather than to fund it out of government. And France, for example, where it's a different uh, strategy historically. And China was involved in 
this sort of nuclear strategy in the Conservative administration. So there has been a sort of, I think, more of a willingness to see China as a possible partner rather than out-and-out opposition than, let's say, was the policy under the Trump administration for certain. But if we look at the Uyghur issues, these haven't really been conservative government-led criticism of the Uyghur issues. This has definitely been a cross-party initiative, if you like, to try and get the government more interested. And as I said, Nuzgani has been involved in that. Tom Tugendhat, who's one of the declared candidates for the next prime minister, has been involved in that. Ian Duncan Smith, a former leader of the Conservative Party, who some say will assume almost one of the kingmaker rules roles in the next election, is also involved in that as well. And it's important to note here that Bo Nuzgarni, Tom Tugendhat and Ian Duncan Smith, I believe still sanctioned by the Chinese regime for speaking out about the Uyghur crisis. So these people care enough about the issue to be sanctioned. They're prohibited from entering China. They're not going to forget this as an issue in a hurry. And as I've said, it's likely to be something that will feature in the leadership election. But I think with a slightly different perspective, I think this is sort of almost morality-based rather than trade-based in the main as an opposition. Well, Jonathan, I want to uh, thank you for our, I can't say hot take, but uh, perhaps update and perhaps we may be revisiting this issue not too far down the road. My pleasure, Tom. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening to this episode of Life with GDPR. We're going to link to the quarterly compliance client alert on this topic. So I hope you will check that out. The uh, link will be in the show notes. I'd like to tell you about two recent limited edition podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. The first one celebrated 100th anniversary of the publication of James Joyce's Ulysses. It's entitled Ulysses at 100, Lessons for the 21st Century Compliance Professional. The second is Never the Same, Why Business Has Changed Forever After the Russian Invasion of Ukraine in Five Key Areas, Supply Chain, Sanctions, and a corruption as a national security issue, cybersecurity, and ESG. You can check out both of these podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. The Ulysses series is under the podcast series, Greetings and Felicitations. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for joining us, and I hope you'll join Jonathan and I again where we take up another issue around GDPR. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.